This is an ABC podcast. A fanfare like that can only mean one thing, the budget, otherwise known as Christmas for economists and Easter for political journalists. Hello, I'm Richard Aidey. I'm not either of those. And this is The Money. At this stage, you've heard a great deal about what's in the budget. You might have read about who the so-called winners and losers are. And you've seen a lot of footage of the Treasurer being interviewed and various people talking about how the budget will affect them. So no more of that today. But there are a couple of things that haven't been mentioned or that could do with some underlining. So I've asked the journalist and author George Megalogenis, who's covered dozens of budgets, to have a look at this one. George, what's the government trying to do here? If we just think about fiscal policy, what's its purpose? At this point in the cycle, uh, Jim Chalmers wanted to help the Reserve Bank of Australia fight inflation. So sort of the primary task of the budget is not to get in the Reserve Bank's way, uh, to do everything they can on the fiscal policy front. That's how they raise taxes and spend money to make sure that they don't add fuel to the inflation fire. We've weathered other economic crises pretty well, GFC for starters, pandemic not that long ago. Is anything different this time? I think when you're talking about inflation, uh, you sort of move Australia back to that long period of underachievement, which is the 70s into the 80s. And inflation is a global phenomenon that becomes a really sticky problem in Australia and it's hard to get out of the system. Uh, the analogy I draw with the GFC and even the pandemic is that we were... Uh, in a crisis, in a global crisis, in a position to master our own destiny. But the GFC, the Reserve Bank had interest rates to cut. Kevin Rudd had a budget surplus, which he could hand back as a as a pre-Christmas bonus to keep the retail sector alive over 2008-9. And in the pandemic, of course, we had the natural advantage of uh, of having a continent to ourselves. And once we closed the borders and very obedient Australian society that sort of shopped in the national interest in 2008, decides to stay at home in the national interest in 2020. We're able to keep the virus out of major sort of community transmission. So those two events, as cataclysmic as they were for the globe, Australia had some natural advantages going into them. Uh, We could put ourselves on a different path to our peers. This time around, inflation is a problem everywhere for everyone. And we know from our history even though this is a different form of uh, global inflation. We know from our history in the 70s and 80s, these things tend to start in the US where, you know, the US sneezes, everybody catches a cold, that old that old cliche. Mm-hmm. This time around, we are not masters of our own destiny. We're reliant on a US that's probably less trustworthy than maybe the Americans of the 70s and 80s in terms of their economic policies. So given given that is it's a big problem to have, how is the government constrained when it comes to to dealing with it because the consensus is that it's not an inflationary budget but it's not an anti-inflationary budget either that's a really good question so we used to have these things these horror budgets in the past we had one in the early 1950s we had another one in 1961 and even keating to a lesser extent in the late 80s would use taxes the revenue side of the budget to target inflation 
it seems a pretty logical thing to do. You know, there's too much spend in the economy. Uh, you can't let interest rates do the job on its own because interest rates and the Reserve Bank is the first to admit it is a very blunt weapon. You know, it's trying to send a signal through a single price uh, for you to spend less and save more. But the tax system can do this just as quickly as, in, in fact, even more quickly if you think about it. You apply a surcharge to a target audience that you want them to spend less and start saving more, uh, you hit them with a levy. But this government, the previous government and the one after that, so you're thinking about that, or even the one before that, you think about the Howard government, you think about the Rudd-Gillard government, and then the ATM, Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison government. Each of them assumed power, or the Prime Minister in between took office uh, with a promise of no new taxes or increases to existing taxes. So what the system has done to itself is it's tied one hand behind its back. And of course, in those intervening 30 years with this mad idea, where they came up with this mad idea that you shouldn't touch the tax side of the budget, that was a low inflation period. That was a period where we thought the Reserve Bank could just sit back and nudge rates here and there just to uh, just to maintain balance in the economy, not so much balance over the general economy, but certainly balance on the inflation front. Now, of course, we're sort of, you know, back to the future. This is, you know, an episode of Stranger Things, whether it's the 80s or the 70s, we're in the upside down again. Inflation is a problem everywhere, uh, but we're now just using the one tool, which is interest rates, which is the bluntest weapon of all. So there's sort of a key bit of the economic toolkit that the government has but can't use? Is that, is that what well, you're saying? Well, just think about it. The, um, we're talking about an inflation fire here, and it's a, it's, it's a, global, it's a global problem. Uh, the glass is broken, but there's a sign across the glass that says, under no circumstances are you allowed to use the fire extinguisher, the fire extinguisher in this case being the revenue side of the budget. Right. So if we can't use the extinguisher of, of a levy, uh, perhaps aimed at the people who can most afford it, what effect then does the cost of living relief that is in this budget have? Is that going to have an effect? Okay, so here's the, here's the needle that uh, Jim Chalmers and the government had to thread on uh, budget night on Tuesday. You can't, as a Labor government, especially a, a newly elected government with a demoralised opponent, uh, you can't look at an inflation crisis and say, we'll just sit on our hands and let the RBA handle this problem for us. And you can't also, as a Labor government, just accept the second proposition, which is we'll then do nothing to add inflation fire by doing nothing. So the needle they've tried to thread is to provide cost of living relief that doesn't add to the burden of inflation and doesn't sort of put the onus back on the Reserve Bank to increase interest rates uh, uh, by an extra point or two or half a point or two and to leave them higher for longer. So how does a, how does a Labor government provide cost of living relief without fueling inflation in its own name, uh, by putting more money into the economy than, than it takes out? Uh, remembering I can't use the revenue side of the budget yeah. to, any, to any meaningful extent, they try to affect prices themselves. So they provide their relief at the price end, so rent relief or at your energy bills. So they don't put, they don't physically put cash in your hand, even though at the end of the day you've got more cash to spend. Yeah. What they're doing is reducing a couple of prices which are very, very sensitive in the basket of goods and services that the Bureau of Statistics uh, uses to measure the consumer price index. So if they can take the top off uh, energy prices, off the you know, projected increase in energy prices, that's deflationary, other things being equal. Of course, other things are never equal. No. Um, households are being provided relief, but there's kind of an implicit bargain here. We don't want you to spend those extra dollars we're going to let you have to ease the squeeze on things like power bills or rent 
or childcare or Medicare. We're supposed you know, to save economic, it, aren't we? We're supposed to yeah, just... Yeah, the economic textbook is saying, I can understand what you're saying politically, but the economic textbook says your best case scenario is, is this is neutral, that the cost of living relief doesn't suddenly encourage households to start spending again. The government is very cautious in its forecasting, and you've touched on this already with America, but how much of that is about what happens overseas rather than here? Think about think about the best-case scenario for Australia. The Reserve Bank suddenly gets on top of inflation. Community expectations are managed. We have a soft landing in the economy. If inflation is still bubbling away in the US, it's going to find its way back in, a bit like, a bit like the virus when your borders are open. It'll find its way back into the Australian economy. So in this instance, and this was the story of the 70s and the 80s, and I'll just remind listeners, the Americans killed inflation 10 years before we did. So our history tells us that inflation tends to linger longer in the Australian system. So we're now reliant on the Americans to sort of pull off the trick that they did in the early 80s. Back then, it took them 10 years to do it, but they still did it. We're relying on the Americans to do it in, in, in real time. So in that sort of 21st century uh, sense of time that we have where everything is sped up, uh, you know, we have an inflation problem that maybe runs for about a year or 18 months and we hope they knock it off in the next year or 18 months. So we're more reliant on them than we want to be and which means, again, back to the original point, we're not masters of our destiny in the no. way we were during the GFC or, or the pandemic. The budget is a political document rather than just a fiscal one. And, and this is the first budget of a still new Labor government. And Labor likes to talk about what being a Labor government means. It talks a lot about fairness. This budget does a little to address it, but not very much. What, what's going on? Is it related to what we were talking about before? Yeah, so this, um, when we think about it, this is the first full budget. Um, they obviously uh, had a mini budget of sorts, which is just a um, checking in, uh, sort of clocking on budget last October. But this is the first full budget. There's a whole lot of things that they ideally would have done. If this was 2008 and you didn't think a GFC was coming through and you had a $20 billion surplus, this budget would look very different. Uh, there'd be a lot of money given out, a lot more money given out on JobKeeper. There'd be a lot more money given out on uh, childcare. There'd be a lot more money given out on aged care. There'd be a lot more money given out on Medicare. And there'd, there'd probably be more confidence that, that they could afford this big defence bill that's sitting over the top of everything uh, in the next 20 or 30 years. But because they can't move, they can't move almost immediately with, with the sort of grand labour gesture, and bear in mind the reason why they would be thinking, would have been thinking along these lines is they want to lock in the next coalition government whenever that side of politics comes back into power to lock them into accepting Labor's agenda. Now, they haven't been able to do this, A, because of inflation, B, because it's probably very important, more important psychologically for Labor to, to book a surplus. This is the surplus that looks like we'll have the financial year just about to end on June 30. Mm. And it's probably more important for them, and they're thinking politically in terms of it, this is a two-term strategy. Let's be honest with ourselves. You wouldn't be putting this sort of budget out uh, if you saw it. That you were time only going to get short. one term, yeah. Well, no, more to the point, time was short and I need to reset the conversation. Okay, they're thinking yeah. they're thinking we've got time on our hands politically. And that's why, you know, they're sort of throwing a few breadcrumbs out. Years from now, you might be able to look back and see the trail. And this is sort of a, the equivalent to Philip Lowe's narrow path to a soft landing. This is, this is the trail looking back to a government that so, feels more like a Labor government. So do you believe the government has a plan 
to, to do more to address socioeconomic inequality, but just not yet? I think that I, I think they've got an intention to. Uh, whether they've got a plan or not, this is a really interesting question. I don't think they've allowed themselves uh, the blue sky thinking behind closed doors to draw on a piece of paper what it would look like in an ideal setting. I think what they've seen, you can almost read it in that sort of final week uh, in the preparation of the budget. You could see as, as it became clearer that the surplus would be booked for 2022-2023 and they were getting blowback on uh, JobKeeper that they thought, I'm going to have to add an extra 10 or $20 to this to this particular thing. So I don't think they allow themselves to think in terms of where they'd like to land. I think they're more drawing the path to a re-election conversation in and around tax reform for the second term, and then they might start to do the big labour things. Now, again, let's think about our history here. Incrementalism never worked for previous labour governments. The previous labour governments that uh, left a legacy, whether they were short-term governments in the Whitlam sense or very long-term governments, 13-year uh, government in the Hawke-Keating sense, most of the big ideas yeah. were landed within the first 18 months. And you knew then what the future would look like. Now you almost there's a bit of an invisible ink in the budget and you need to you need to squeeze a bit of lemon on it just to figure out yeah, it's, what the hell it is they're trying to tell us. It's well it's it's sort of like a, a murmur of a suggestion of a hint that something yeah. something will be better in the future. And I wonder whether we're just projecting onto them what we think that they would like to do, uh, but they haven't told us. They've said we'd like to do more, but they haven't told us what that more is, what that more looks like. And look, I think if they had their time over again, the last, the fortnight leading up to the budget and the couple of days since the release of the budget would have looked very different. They would have anticipated the questions on JobKeeper. Look, they feel like they're sideswiped by a very genuine leak, not a drop, a, a genuine leak that Mark Riley got about the tweak to the entitlement to JobKeeper for people aged between 55 and 59. So they didn't see that thing popping out. And then when it popped out, their answer was, mm, okay, well, you know, we can't do everything we want to do in this first term. Well, maybe you should have told us you intend to lift the JobKeeper rate across the board, but we can't get to where we ultimately want to be in one budget. But trust us and can't keep coming back and nagging us about it in the future when the opportunity to do this is there, we will, we will add to the kitty. Something as clear-cut as that would have, uh, would have sort of got them out of that weird sort of half conversation they're having post the budget, which is, okay, you booked a surplus, but why couldn't you do more? Oh, hang on a minute. I know you couldn't do more because of inflation, but what does the future look like? So I think they're... Um, Training wheels are still on, notwithstanding the fact that a lot of them around the uh, expenditure review table uh, were live witnesses to the regular yeah. ideas. And in Katie Gallagher's example, she, she led a government, she led quite a successful government, a reformist government in the ACT. George, still a lot to talk about, but that is where we'll have to leave it. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Author and journalist George Megalogenis. This is the one that brings home the bacon. Uh, this is the... Uh, this is the budget that pulls the whole game together from 1983 onwards and consolidates almost everything we've done in that time. Tonight, I announce that the budget is back in the black and Australia is back on track. Yeah. Former Treasurer Josh Frydenberg and for him, Paul Keating, demonstrating hubris. Events don't always work out the way a treasurer expects them to work out. And when they've been as 
well, like that, those particular moments become part of political and economic folklore. And that's the kind of thing I want to look at now, because budgets aren't just documents, not just fiscal policy, not even politics pretending to be fiscal policy. They're milestones, they're performances. They say something about how the government feels, and not just about the country, about itself too. And to tap into that, we need an historian like Frank Bongiorno, Professor of History at the Australian National University. Frank, let's start with what we've just seen. What did you make of the Treasurer's overall performance the other night? Well, budgets are kind of opportunities to announce priorities and values, at least they are these days. And I think it was very much that sort of performance. Obviously, the environment at the moment is one of a rising cost of living. There's a lot of concern about social groups who are suffering at the moment as a result of that, but also more generally, I think. And this was, I think, an attempt to direct some spending in those directions without incurring the kind of accusation of being fiscally irresponsible. So it was also obviously pretty conservative budget reflecting, you know, general fiscal environment. But, you know, I think it was also the priority was clearly around those who were seen to be doing it tough at the moment. I was watching and and listening partly with an eye to tone, which I wanted to ask you about, because it was not a a kind of classic uh, first budget uh, with kind of triumphalism in there. It was more measured and restrained. There were some political points scored, but, but I felt that it was more about control. Well, budgets are often dangerous moments for governments in terms of performance. Paul Keating called uh, his budget in 1988. This is the one that brings home the bacon. And of course, it actually turned out to be the sort of curtain raiser for a very deep recession and and a a really difficult decade in Australia's economic history. And of course, we saw the last coalition government and its treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, uh, announce that the budget was back in the black um, shortly before COVID came along and ensured that that never actually came to pass. So yeah, look, I I can understand the caution of Jim Chalmers in the circumstances and, and particularly his caution over the whole issue of the surplus because, you know, clearly the government's projections are that it will be temporary Mm. and uh, the last thing he would want to be seen as doing is being triumphalist about a situation that, that, you know, may really in a lot of ways be just a result of serendipitous circumstances in the present. I'm interested in in asking you about how budget speeches have changed. Uh, You point out that the economic historian Boris Shvedvin, hope I'm saying that right, Uh, said that Earl Page, the treasurer for much of the 1920s, read more like a chairman's address to the annual meeting of a large public company than the nation's principal document on economic policy. Absolutely. I mean, Page was the country party treasurer in the 1920s. And look, in that period, the budget wasn't really a big deal. And certainly the budget speech wasn't considered the big deal that it it would later become. I mean, budgets have always been obviously very important in terms of parliamentary process. I mean, one of the ways in which 
oppositions have sometimes tested the confidence of governments has been by a manoeuvre that John Curtin, for instance, carried out in, in 1941, and that was moving to reduce the budget by one pound. And of course, <laughs> that's purely symbolic. It was an attempt to test whether the government of the day still had the confidence of the House. And as it turned out, it didn't. So, But budgets are, are, are very important in that respect. Um, uh, they're often flashpoints for conflict between different chambers of the parliament. But the budget speech and budget night as, as a, a huge occasion, I think, is a mu- of much more recent origin. And I think I'd date its rising importance to about the 1950s, actually. And, and in particular, the budget called the Horror Budget, which was Arthur Fadden's budget of 1951, uh, really massive cuts designed to deal with the problem of inflation, which was running at about 20% at that stage, and so much worse than anything we, we have at the moment. And I think from about that time onwards, the budget grew in importance as a kind of national occasion for Australians. And of course, the capital itself had only been here in Canberra since 1927 as the seat of government. And uh, um, I think the rising importance of the budget, you know, sort of in some ways coincides with the rising profile of Canberra. And the other thing, and a broadcaster would say this, Frank, but I'm wondering if from the 50s onwards, you start to get more and more broadcasting of these things too. Well, that's true. I mean, radio broadcasting of Parliament had really begun in the 1940s. And of course, in the 50s, we get the arrival of television. So yeah, look, there's a proliferation of what we now call media platforms. Um, the printed word, the newspaper, still remains really dominant. And it's striking that in 1954, when there was a budget leak, it was a leak by Arthur Thadden, deliberate leak, to a young newspaperman, Hal Myers. So the newspaper still remained very dominant, you know, arguably right through to about the 1970s, certainly to the 1960s. But yes, yeah, certainly the rise of radio and then the rise of television, I guess, in more recent times, social media have have provided just multiple opportunities, really, for budget talk in the lead-up and then afterwards as well. Well, now, as you touched on, it's very much about setting the macroeconomic agenda. Are you able to discern, looking back, a kind of pattern in how the management of the economy has changed? Yes. I mean, I guess macroeconomic management of the kind we think about today really was a product of the 1930s onwards. I mean, the Great Depression of the early 30s gave the the professional economists their chance and they became really key advisors to both governments and to the banks. And I think from that point onwards, with the rise of, of you know, Keynesian theory in place, I guess, of traditional sort of, you know, more a, a kind of accounting style, you know, and a, a, a traditional, you know, sort of auditing and accounting approach to these matters, to national budgets... I think with all that, you, you do get something that, that you know, is recognisable as, as modern macroeconomic management. So I date that from, I guess in Australia, from about the 1930s. And, and the first budget that, you know, has been seen as a Keynesian budget, you know, one that was really designed to, to shape the overall level of activity in the economy through encouraging investment, through the particular setting of the levels of taxation, was 1939. And it was the, the first war economy at the end of 1939 that was delivered by acting treasurer Percy Spender. Frank, do budgets change the longer a government's in, in office? Well, I think the, the the political cycle is very important, isn't it, in, in shaping what budgets do and what they attempt to do. So 
you know, it's often the case that the nasties will be delivered early in a political cycle, perhaps in the first year. And many of us remember very well the first of those Abbott government budgets in 2014, which was so nasty and so um, unpopular that it, it, it basically undermined the government. The government and, and Abbott's prime ministership really never recovered from that moment, nor did Joe Hockey's position as treasurer. So often the early period of an economic cycle tends to be the nasties. And then later, and, and certainly in the lead up to election, governments have tended to look for what they've increasingly called these, uh, you know, in recent years, a bounce, you know, a sort of directed spirit spending that would help them with the voters and, and governments have often entered the kind of third year of uh, that election cycle in, in difficulty. Uh, one thinks of John Howard in, in 2001, for instance, and they look to the budget as a chance to recover their political fortunes. But, you know, very often it simply doesn't work. I mean, once the government's on the nose, uh, that kind of spending via a budget um, often has very little impact on its political fortunes. So uh, it's often a hopeful moment for, for ailing governments, but doesn't necessarily come through for them. That Joe Hockey first budget, of course, very relatively recent and, and was clearly a miscalculation. Have there been others that have kind of become political miscalculations that, that came about in the budget? Well, yes. I mean, the Whitlam government is often criticised for its 1974 budget, you know, at a moment where the long boom was over and, you know, a lot of economic analysts were, were basically arguing that the, the government needed to rein in spending. It actually went down a totally different path and, and really delivered a, a pretty if not a big spending budget, certainly a, a pretty, you know, loose budget, I suppose you'd call it. And the problems that the Whitlam government faced in its last year uh, were to some extent a result of, of the difficulties of its, its 1974 budget. Ironically, its 1975 budget reined in a lot of that spending. It was delivered by uh, Bill Hayden, but of course it was uh, blocked for political reasons in the Senate. And, and of course that was the, uh, the pathway to the dismissal of that government in November 1975. Um, but certainly there have been budgets that have turned out badly for governments. I mean, another example would be the Dawkins budget in the in the Keating government um, in 1993, which again wasn't well sold, backtracked on commitments to cut taxes and, and uh, some analysis of the of the Keating government and and the decline of the Keating government would 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 argue that that um, budget failure of 1993, obstructed by a couple of um, independents, sort of Greens leaning independents, was was a, a bad moment for the government and it was all sort of downhill from there really. Frank, I know it's about substance, but which treasurer do you think delivered the budget with the greatest pizzazz? If we if we had, we call it the Earl Page, the Earl Page scale. Who, who's up the far end of it? In terms of performance, well, I mean, I think Keating's performances as, as treasurer were theatrical. I mean, he talked about throwing the switch to vaudeville and it wasn't necessarily just what happened on the floor of the parliament when the budget speeches were being delivered. It was also all of the, the razzmatazz around it. He's dealing with the media, you know, media conferences, um, interviews and all the rest of it. And so, I mean, I think Keating's showmanship in a lot of ways, again, elevated, I think, the profile and importance of the annual budget and budget night during the 1980s. Um, of course, you know, the, the things we remember from that period are less the budgets and those big economic decisions such as the floating of the dollar. But 
the budgets were really important too. I mean, they're a very important part of the story of of that government and indeed, you know, its ability to align its budgets with the election cycle was critical in that government's longevity. It lasted for 13 years and that had a lot to do with its ability to deliver either budgets or major economic statements at, at the critical moments. So I think I'd certainly rate Keating very highly in that regard. Frank, after a couple of days now of hearing all about the here and now, it's been great that you've been able to put this in a bigger perspective for us. Thank you very much for joining us today. I was delighted to do so. Thanks, Richard. Frank Bongiorno is Professor of History at the ANU. Next time on The Money, at a time when infrastructure is very much on people's minds, how to get that right. If you look at most big projects, there's delays, there's cost blowouts, and even when they're finished, they're often not as effective as we've been told they're going to be. So how to change that? Join us for that next time. The Money's produced by Kate McDonald, which is not something I'm going to say again, at least for a bit. Kate's a wonderful producer and a better person, and she's been terrific to work with, but she needs a break. I'm going to miss her. This is The Money. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.